Hello everyone, my name is Marta Isabel Garcia, the head of Stevenson Harwood's Competition and Foreign Direct Investment Team here in London, and welcome to Stevenson Harwood's podcast on the UK's new National Security and Investment Act 2021, which you'll hear us refer to throughout as the NSIA. Now, before we kick off, just to explain to our listeners, the NSIA will create for the first time a new standalone national security regime that allows the UK government to scrutinise and intervene in transactions that may give rise to national security concerns. It will come into full effect on the 4th of January next year and be enforced by the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, Bays, with the Secretary of State being the ultimate decision maker in all of this. Importantly, it will give the government the power to clear, impose conditions or block deals to address any national security concerns. So it's a very broad piece of legislation, as you will hear in this podcast, and it is expected to capture many types of arrangements, especially in the life sciences sector, anything ranging from equity financing and asset acquisitions to IP licensing and collaborations. So it's therefore particularly important for those working in the life sciences sector to understand the NSIA's scope and impact on their commercial arrangements. Now, to help make sense of this subject, I'm joined here today by three of my colleagues, Alexandra Peigel, who is a partner in our IP team and the head of our cross-departmental life sciences practice. Alex regularly represents clients on transactional and litigation matters in the life sciences sectors, including in relation to collaboration, licensing and M&A deals. And Alex has degrees in both law and chemistry, and this combination makes her very well placed to advise on life sciences deals. We also have Tom Page, who is a partner in Stevenson Harwood's M&A practice. He has extensive experience in advising clients on all types of corporate deals and has particular expertise in the life sciences, M&A sector and capital markets. And finally, we have Will Spence, who is one of our NSIA resident experts in the firm's competition and foreign direct investment team. Alex, Tom and Will, a pleasure to have you join today. So let's, let's start. Will, perhaps you can explain why it is exactly that the life sciences sector especially will be affected by the NSIA. Sure. Well, I think there are a number of reasons, Marta, but the main one worth highlighting is the fact that the NSIA will impose severe penalties on any parties who fail to make any filing under the mandatory notification regime and complete a transaction without approval from Bayes, namely fines of up to 5% of a company's global turnover, or £10 million, whichever is the higher, and even criminal sanctions which can be imposed on the company's directors if they knowingly or recklessly fail to make a mandatory filing. These draconian penalties are very relevant to the life sciences sector in particular, given that a large number of life sciences deals are going to fall within the NSIA's mandatory regime. This is because the mandatory regime applies if there is, on the one hand, an acquisition of shares or voting rights, where generally speaking the applicable thresholds are 25%, 50% or 75%, and on the other hand, if the target company is active in one or more of 17 key sectors in the UK. The 17 sensitive sector definitions are very broad, and three of them in particular are relevant to the life sciences sector, namely synthetic biology, artificial intelligence and advanced materials. So in life sciences deals, the large majority will certainly fall into the latter part of this test, and the former is often likely to be met too. Life sciences companies, and particularly startup companies, will need quick access to cash to fund their R&D activities, which they will often obtain by issuing high equity stakes. So for life sciences companies, it really is difficult to avoid the mandatory notification regime. And given that the mandatory regime is suspensory, the consequent need for life sciences companies to obtain approval, potentially any time an investor is looking to take a high stake, is likely to delay investment and innovation, which will be most unwelcome to day-to-day business. And Will, just two 
What does suspensory mean there for the non-experts? Suspensory time is where parties will have to obtain clearance prior to closing a deal. It does not mean that there has to be a delay to signing necessarily, but certainly parties cannot implement or close a deal without receiving prior approval from the relevant authority, which in this case is BASE. And just to add, sitting underneath the managed regime is a so-called voluntary regime, which essentially sweeps up all transactions which are not covered by the mandatory one, including all manner of asset acquisitions. And please note that Bayes will have the discretionary power to call in these deals, even if parties choose not to notify them voluntarily. And in these situations, parties will need to carefully assess what the potential national security risks may be in these deals, if any, and decide whether Bayes are going to realistically call in the deal, which will dictate whether they actually make such a voluntary filing. So really the key message here is that the NSIA will add another substantial layer of complexity to deals in the life sciences sector. Thanks, Will. That's really useful to to understand. Maybe picking up on on one of your points on the 17 sensitive sectors that you mentioned, they've obviously been subject to consultation. And recently, the government, um, we know, has published new guidance on exactly how to apply these sector definitions. Alex, if we we turn to you, um, what do you think about the three sectors identified by Will? Do you think they will capture many life sciences deals? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Marta. I think as, as... Um, many lawyers may say, um, unfortunately, the devil is in the detail when it comes to answering that question. The way the NSIA is structured is that it contains definitions of these key sectors, but then it also contains a series of exceptions to the sectors. And I think it's a case of working through that cascade of definitions and exceptions to work out whether the particular technology, which is the subject of the proposed deal, is caught or not. I mean, let's take by way of example the area of gene therapy, which is a, a topic of interest to many of our clients. Gene therapy is expressly included within the definition of synthetic biology, which is one of the 17 key sectors. But there are then a series of specific exceptions from this. In particular, an exception is that gene therapy is not caught where it is used solely for the purpose of replacing missing or defective genes to restore phenotypes to achieve a therapeutic effect. Also exempted is the development of human medicines. Unless, however, the medicine has a synthetic biology technology that could be employed or modified to produce, deliver, or produce and deliver toxic chemicals to achieve an incapacitating or lethal effect on humans or animals. And by way of example, it's a little bit unclear to us how that exception might apply. Lots of technology could be modified in this way, even if it isn't in practice. So the definitions are going to require some working through. And, And similar definitions and exceptions exist for the other two key sectors for this industry, which which Will mentioned, which are advanced materials and artificial intelligence. In understanding the government's intention in all of this, I was quite interested to read the response which the government issued to the original draft sector definitions. And and the definition of synthetic biology is one which changed significantly between the original draft and the current proposed definition. And in that response, I was interested to see that the government stated that the policy intent continues to be ensuring the UK has appropriate safeguards in place to protect our national security and make the UK a global biotechnology partner of choice. They say in the response, we want to encourage research and development that will be crucial to combating current and future risks and which makes an important contribution to UK economic prosperity and security. However, they then go on to say, synthetic biology is, by its very nature, rapidly evolving and technically complicated. 
Many of the tools or enabling technologies are dual use, and they seem very interested in this dual use, which I think is perhaps where the potential for modification language comes in in the uh, exception which I just described. They say many of the tools or enabling technologies are dual use and difficult for the government to comprehensively monitor well enough to proactively call in transactions that are not routinely notified. The dual use issue makes it difficult to identify organisations, particularly those involved in defence and security related work, or whose work could be used or repurposed for nefarious means. I thought that for me was a, a useful sort of summary of where the government seems to be coming from on this definition. They're, they're not intending, I don't think, to capture many things. The problem is the legislation has been drafted in a way to give the potential to capture these things, particularly those with a dual purpose. So I think what's clear to me is there's going to have to be a lot of work in combination with technical and legal experts to try and understand whether this applies or not. It's also the use of the word could there, isn't it? Because obviously in this sector, many things could be repurposed. Absolutely, Tom. And even as the government says, things are moving so quickly in the science as well. Who, who knows what... We've got plenty of brilliant scientists in the UK. There's lots of opportunity for modification and development of these technologies in the future. So it's going to be frustrating for clients, isn't it, when they have no intention of purposing something to do something that this act is presumably designed to, um, you know, to focus on. But we're going to have to say to them, this is the wording of the legislation and we need to work through it. Absolutely right. So, Tom, in light of Alex's comments here, do you think that possibly from an M&A perspective, parties in the life sciences sector might be able to restructure their deals to try and fall outside of the mandatory regime or in some way mitigate their NSIA risk in any way? No, thanks, Marta. It, it, it's an interesting question, isn't it? So what we're really talking about there is uh, would a transaction that would be within the mandatory regime because it was equity-based, as in you're buying the shares in the company um, and you trip the relevant equity control thresholds and you're in the relevant sectors, could that be restructured as an asset deal? or a business and asset deal and therefore put you into the voluntary regime and maybe you decide not to um, make a filing. Uh, and there's obviously many factors that people consider when they're trying to decide how to structure a, a transaction. And, and this NSAA would just be another, another one of those. I, I, I suspect that you know, the broader commercial considerations that go into that and the, you know, the well-known structuring things around you know, simplicity of buying a company rather than the assets and not having to sign contracts or tax and employees, I suspect that will mean that the times when the NSAA is a determining factor as to how to structure are probably not going to be that, that many. And it strikes me, in my simplistic M&A lawyer's way, that if you do have a national security concern, and either you're in mandatory or you would probably decide to make a voluntary filing anyway because you'd want deal certainty and you'd want to know that Bayes weren't going to come back and unpick your deal. And then if you don't have a national security concern, one would hope that the notification and approval process won't be too onerous because it's not national security, it's not what this is designed to attract. So the sort of downside in a non-national security situation is probably going to be outweighed by all of the other factors that generally go into deciding how to structure a deal. But you're right that hypothetically, you know, you can buy business and assets rather than the equity in the company, so maybe sometimes that will be what people do. It depends on the circumstances, um, and it depends on, I think, how, how Bayes' attitude evolves. And, and, and we're talking there just to note about, about M&A, but this does, doesn't it, apply to fundraising as well, because obviously, especially for life sciences companies, in most circumstances, especially when they're growing, they're going to be raising money through 
equity and not debt. I don't think the commercial drivers behind that are going to be changed by this NSAA regime. And so it's not necessarily just M&A. You're, you're issuing equity to new people. You trip those uh, thresholds and you've got to think about NSA, including on IPOs, I think, so whenever you're issuing equity. So, so Marta, so, so if a company is in one of these sectors or has um, assets in one of these key sectors, so the 17 and for life sciences particularly the three, does that mean that almost any transaction they undertake is going to be reviewable by Bayes? And so then they need to factor in NSAA in, into everything they do going forwards. So I, I think the answer to your, your second question is that they definitely are going to need to factor that, the NSIA assessment, into deals and transactions that they're considering going forward. Whether or not they will then be reviewable by Bayes is, is a separate matter. But I think what parties need to understand about the NSIA and how it's structured is that Firstly, there is the mandatory notification regime, as we've heard, but that will only be triggered if there are three conditions that are met. And the first, obviously, is that the target of the acquisition is operating in one of these case-sensitive sectors. Second, the target has to have a sufficient nexus to the UK, and namely here what we mean is carrying on activities in the UK. And there has to be this acquisition of shares or voting rights in the target company above the thresholds of 25%, 50% or 75%. The mandatory regime doesn't apply to asset deals and there's no actual requirement for the deal to raise a national security risk. So that's the first thing they need to understand. If you meet those conditions, there's an automatic mandatory notification requirement as of 4th of January when the regime kicks in formally. But obviously, if these uh, mandatory notification thresholds are not met, because, say, the activities of the target company fall outside of these 17 sensitive sectors. So what I'm talking about here is maybe also possibly an acquisition of less than 25%. uh, And there is this concept of material influence, which will trigger the NSIA if, say, you acquire even just a 10% shareholding or you structure the deal as an asset acquisition, Tom, as as you mentioned, then you could avoid... A mandatory filing. But then what the parties have to consider is, do I make a voluntary filing or not? And here, really, that is only going to kick in if the deal raises a national security risk and there is sufficient UK nexus. So this will be very case specific. Um, and it will obviously depend on whether there is a significant national security risk. Otherwise, you may find that parties are not too concerned about the NSIA. But obviously, Given there is this voluntary regime and also the fact that Bayes does have a power to call in deals and review them in particular if they do raise a national security concern, if a party decides not to make a filing to Bayes, it does need to assess whether there is a real call-in risk. And again, that goes back to is there a national security risk? So to answer your question, I think that now a life science Companies that are involved in deals need to ask themselves the question, does the NSIA apply? Do I fall within the mandatory regime? And if not, does it raise a national security concern? And if so, do I need to think about making a voluntary filing because I prefer to put my best foot forward with Bayes rather than wait for Bayes to come knocking on my door? Okay. Um, You were mentioning UK Nexus. Uh, I think it's the case, is it, strangely, that you could have a buyer and a seller, who neither of whom were UK companies. Yeah, that's right, Tom. It's it's perfectly possible under the NSIA to have a transaction involving two foreign companies who aren't even incorporated in the UK and yet be called by the scope of the national security regime. 
if the two companies were, say, exporting goods and or services to persons located in the UK, they would fall under the remit of the voluntary filing and BASE would have the discretionary ability to call it in for review. And I think importantly also, which some clients don't understand, is you can have two parties which are, are both UK parties and they're, they're often thinking, well, hang on a minute, doesn't this involve a foreign acquirer? And so I think that's important to bear in mind as well, that the uh, legislation is nationality agnostic. Hmm. Important point, obviously. Uh, do we have an idea for how often the government is going to exercise this uh, this call-in power? Well, look, Bayes technically does have this call-in power. And when we have been speaking to Bayes on a number of different scenarios raised by our clients, whether in the life sciences sector or not, they have indicated that they expect to use their call-in power rarely and only in situations where there is a significant national security concern. Now, of course, the issue then is we still don't necessarily know how they will interpret this criterion of national security concern and we will have to wait to see how that develops over time. Now, another important thing about this Bayes call-in power is that they have up to five years in which to use this power. And we should also remember that the call-in power can be applied retrospectively to deals that have completed on or after the 12th of November 2020. So although the legislation isn't coming into full force until the 4th of January 2022, the legislation does already have some teeth. And just to add to that, what you might find is parties increasingly notifying pays out of an abundance of caution, because what compounds this issue is the fact that the UK government has not actually provided a definition of what national security means, which makes it very difficult for parties to self-assess their deals and decide whether a notification is necessary. Just know this is very deliberate. The UK government has a long-standing policy not to provide any specific details as to what it considers the most relevant national security threats for two reasons. The first is that providing any concrete definition might prevent the government from being able to adapt their reviews flexibly to respond to changing concerns, meaning their hands might be tied in any future NSIA reviews. And the second is that providing a detailed list of what the government is most concerned about is in and of itself a security threat because it tells hostile actors exactly where to focus their attentions. So what the government has done instead of this is clarified that its national security assessments will focus on three core elements. The first is the target risk i.e. the area of the UK economy in which the target is active. And clearly, if this is in one of the 17 key sectors, the risk factor will be higher. The second is the acquirer risk. So whether the acquirer is, for instance, controlled by a sovereign government who is considered hostile to the UK's national security, or whether it has ties to any illicit activities like money laundering or terrorism, for example. And the final element is the control risk. How much influence would the acquirer actually gain over the target as a result of the transaction. Clearly, if it was acquiring 100% of the shares, then it will have full control. Bayes has noted it will conduct a balanced assessment based on these three factors when assessing any national security risks there may be. Specifically, in the life sciences sector, it is not clear how this assessment will apply in context. Indeed, because many of the specific key sectors I've mentioned seem fairly innocuous and there do not seem to be any obvious national security concerns. But even in these areas, seemingly innocuous activities can if they fall into the wrong hands, give rise to national security concerns. So parties should not assume that just because their area of activity seems benign, that the government will not take an interest. And Alex, I think that goes back to the point you were mentioning earlier, how you, you know there is that dual use potential. I think that's what the government is still trying to capture. They seem very focused on that, don't they, in their commentary, Marta? They do, and even in the recent guidance they published earlier this month. So we mentioned earlier that the NSIA captures an extraordinary array of asset acquisitions, including IP licensing arrangements, where there's even the potential for the NSI to apply to university research projects. 
Alex, I know from conversations that we've had together that this is something you are particularly concerned about. I wondered whether there's anything you, you wanted to add on this. Yeah, absolutely, Will. And I know you're absolutely right. You and I have had some interesting conversations about this to date. I have to admit this came as a, a surprise to me, the fact that the NSIA is going to capture licensing and research collaboration arrangements as well as more traditional M&A uh, style deals. And I'm personally concerned about whether the right balance will be struck between safeguarding the national security interest and minimising the burdens placed on the sector. And I think the reason that this came as a surprise to me is that I understand the licensing and collaboration deals are caught because they're treated as the acquisition of an asset. And as a licensing lawyer, that's a slightly unusual way of thinking about a licensing deal. It's not an acquisition, it's a, it's a licensing arrangement. But under the NSIA, those deals are caught. And that's because they allow the acquirer and in this case the licensee, to control or direct the use of the licensed asset, either completely or to a greater extent than before the licensing deal took place. Importantly, though, I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that it is only the voluntary notification scheme which will apply in the context of licensing and collaborations and not the mandatory notification requirement. And the voluntary scheme will only apply if there could be a national security concern. I think it's also important to note the point that you made earlier, Will, about the question around UK nexus and what's required. And I think that will come as a surprise to many people in the licensing sector as well, because the relevant guidance provides that a deal is caught if the relevant IP is used in connections with activities carried on in the UK and whether the technology developed under that licence agreement will be used in the UK. So the legislation captures, for example, IP licensed to the UK from outside the UK, say by a German company but it also captures any license where the outcome of the license that is the product or the research outcome could be used in the UK even if neither contracting entity is actually in the UK and I think that came as a surprise to many people in the licensing world and as you quite rightly said Will I think it's come as a surprise that the legislation will also oblige UK universities and research institutes for the first time to consider risks to national security when they do their IP deals and that will include licensing and spin-out arrangements for example. So, yes, this has all been very educational for me and, and for others in the licensing sector. So, as we've said um, earlier in this podcast, it's clear that the NSIA is going to add a, another layer of complexity to deals for parties, and it can have timing implications for those deal timetables, which parties will need to bear in mind if their transactions are caught and reviewed by Bayes. I wonder, well, whether you've got any extra comments you, you want to make on that. Yeah, of course. Well, I think there are two important elements in respect to the review periods. One is that the actual review period that Bayes will conduct can potentially be very long. Although Bayes have said that they expect the majority of deals within an initial 30 working day period, it's important to note that they do have the ability to refer a deal to an in-depth assessment which can last for a further 30 working days and then another 45 working days on top of that if it is deemed necessary. With the result, their total review period can last up to 105 working days or actually even longer if Bayes decide to stop the clock on the matter for any reason. So you have a potentially long review period, but the other factor to bear in mind is the sheer number of filings that we expect Bayes to receive in any given year. Bayes have conservatively estimated that it might receive 1,800 NSIA filings a year, and many other stakeholders believe this number could be even higher, with the result that given the sheer volume of filings being submitted under this new legislation, there could be inevitable administrative delays that parties may experience going forward once the NSIA regime goes live on the 4th of January next year. And if I may briefly add, um, if a mandatory filing is triggered, given it is suspensory and the parties can't close the deal until they do get that approval from Bayes, 
parties do need to include a suitable condition precedent. Now, that, of course, means that there would be a split signing and closing and that there has to be an adequate long stop date included in the deal documentation to reflect the fact that there will be a a review period that needs to be taken into account. Now, another important point to bear in mind, obviously, on timing is that even if a mandatory filing is not triggered, so you're in this voluntary filing regime, if the deal raises significant national security risks, say that remedies may well be necessary or likely, it would be prudent also there for the acquirer to include a condition president in the deal documentation. Now, as we've mentioned already, Bayes does have this call-in power, which is subject to a five-year limitation period, and Bayes does have the power to unwind any completed deal or even halt any integration by imposing a hold separate order on the parties if it decides to call in and review a deal, similar to what it can do in the merger control arena. So these are just important points to bear in mind from a timing perspective. So thank you, everyone. I think uh, we're nearing the end of our podcast and perhaps I can ask each of you to give our listeners a key takeaway. If I might kick off, I think the key takeaway I would like to highlight is for companies operating in the life sciences sector, if you are contemplating a deal involving the acquisition of shares or voting rights in a target which is above 25% and the target is active in one of the three key sectors or any of the 17 key sectors that we have mentioned and they carry on these activities in the UK, you will be caught by the mandatory notification regime that will kick in as of the 4th of January next year. Therefore, if you are aware of such a deal coming in the pipeline, make sure you start preparing a filing and reflecting on the NSI risk in your deal documentation. Alex? One of the points we haven't talked about today, which is also interesting, is that if you make Bayes aware of any deal which has the possibility of a call-in, this in fact reduces the period in which Bayes can call in the deal from five years to six months. And so that's an important consideration when deciding whether to make Bayes aware of your deal voluntarily. Tom, what's, what's your key takeaway? So I think um, on, on the corporate side in the life sciences sector, what's become clear from this podcast is that we may be into NSIA territory in circumstances where we wouldn't have expected to be. So it is another thing that you have to consider at the beginning of the transaction. And hopefully, although on the face of it, it looks like we may be facing um, a pretty onerous regime. Hopefully, we can rely on them, the indications from the government that they want to help steer this sector and others through um, uh, to, to a sort of generally accepted approach. I agree, Tom. I really hope that they are right in their response where they say that they want to make the UK a global biotechnology partner of choice. And I, I really hope they don't let this uh, legislation prevent that from happening. Well, on that point, thank you very much. I think this has been a very interesting podcast and it's very clear that obviously the NSIA is not a piece of legislation that we can ignore or take lightly. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.